Well, before we dig into our passage this morning, uh, before I went off on holiday, uh, there were a couple of blue slips, which uh, are opportunity for people to ask uh, questions or make comments on uh, the sermons that we've had over the last uh, few weeks, and uh, there was jokes of when was I going to answer them, since I was going away for two weeks on holiday. Um, the answer is this week. Um, so, we've just got two questions from uh, Titus. And the first one, I'll read it out in full, and then I'll, I'll give you an answer. It says, a question about the children of elders in 1 Timothy 3, uh, 4 and 5 and 12. It says, elders and deacons' children should be submissive, and elders should manage their households well. In Titus 1, the bar is set much higher. It says they should be believers. How can this work in practice? An elder may have no children when appointed, but have them later. What if they don't become believers? Or apparently believing children may drift away. How literally should we take this? Well, what I want to say to that in Titus, where it talks about the children uh, of the elders, there's a footnote in most Bibles. Interestingly, in in these ones, there's not. Um, But it says, where it says believing, uh, at the bottom it says, or are faithful. So both have to do with faith, have to do with believing. But the question is whether it's saying they must be believers or whether they must be faithful. I think we understand the difference between those two things. If you have children who are not faithful, who are uh, raucous and crazy, then putting that person in charge of a church is probably not a good idea because that is an example of how they're going to look after the church. And in the same way that a minister can't ensure that everybody in his church is a Christian, I want to say every uh, elder can't assure that his family are all Christians either. Those things are in the hands of God uh, as he chooses. So I want to argue that it's not saying that they must have uh, Christian uh, children. It's saying that they must have children who are faithful, who are not openly rebellious, who uh, are not open to the charge of being uh, a bit crazy. So that's that's how I'd go with that. Obviously, there are exceptions, there are issues, medical issues sometimes that come into play. Uh, with the issue of, well, what if they uh, go away from that? Well, I think you need to address that when when it happens. In the same way it says a husband of one wife. If your minister gets married again, I have no plans to do so, you'd have to look at whether they can be your minister. So there are things that can change whether somebody uh, can be an elder. So I, I'd say you want to look at it as, it as it comes. So if you've got any questions about that, come back to me afterwards or write it on a blue slip. Other question... Uh, Titus chapter 2 verses 7 and 8. Assuming Titus is a younger man in 1 verse 4, uh, are not uh, chapter 2 verses 7 and 8 applicable to younger men in general, not just leaders? So it says, example, a model of good work, showing integrity, dignity, sound speech. If you remember when we looked at that, we said the one commandment for young men was self-control. And we said, actually, for young men, that's that's almost hard enough, isn't it? If young men got their head around that, actually, a lot of problems that young men have uh, would go. I want to say that those things are good things for young men to do, to be uh, showing integrity, modelling good works. And I think that's why Timothy is to show, sorry, Titus uh, is to show that, so that they can follow his example. But I don't think that it's a specific command given to them. Uh, But it is a good thing, good thing to do. So textually, no, it's it's not to them. But yeah, of course you want people to be uh, showing integrity, dignity and sound speech. Of course you want young men to be doing that. But the difference there, I think, is showing themselves to be a model of, which is the language that I've used. It's more of a, a leader uh, than of a, uh, somebody who's just a member of the church. Okay, again, if you have any questions to do with that, do get back to me uh, afterwards. or write it on a blue slip, and they go in the uh, wooden box uh, at the back. So we're going to come to our passage now this morning. 
<clears throat> and I want to start with a question. How big is your Jesus? How big is your Jesus? That might sound like a little bit of a strange uh, question. Uh, I bet it's one you've probably not been asked uh, before. Um, but people have different opinions, don't they, of Jesus? And they can either be quite big or they can be quite small. So if you went into the streets of Otley or Ilkley and asked them that question, you'd get all sorts of different answers, wouldn't you? Well, I think he was fairly important, you know, an important moral teacher. Uh, perhaps you'd get the answer he was a gifted prophet, so fairly important. Uh, it was the ultimate example, we're just to follow him. But then you'd start getting smaller ones, wouldn't you? So uh, a simple carpenter, or a devious fraudster, or a fairy tale. I think you'd get the whole mixture uh, of those things, but quite small views of Jesus, really. And even within our church, even within churches, practicalities can differ, can't they, of how we view Jesus and how big he is. Some people have Jesus as just a genie who grants me my wishes. So I want this and I'll, I'll use Jesus to get it. Some places you get Jesus, the, the softy, who doesn't really care about sin, just wants to give you a big hug. Or Jesus, the buddy, who just wants to be your friend. Even in churches, we can fall into these small Jesuses. But none of these people, that, none of these views and opinions really appreciate just how big Jesus is. Now, Jesus in our passage today, on the surface of it, will seem quite small. The events that are described here as he stands before a leader, as he stands silent, as he's beaten, in some senses, it's going to look like he's, he's quite little, he's quite powerless. But the person who stands here on trial is huge. And our passage is going to show that uh, as we look through it. And that should matter to us this morning. Because if we make our Jesus too small, then he'll be less than what we need for life. If we make him too small, then we won't go to him. Uh, we'll cling to smaller things, won't we, that we think in our heads are bigger. If we don't have Jesus big enough, then our problems will seem too big. And instead of going to Jesus, we'll, we'll just wallow in despair. So as we jump into our passage this morning, we fast-forwarded a, a few days from our previous passage with uh, Jesus lamenting over Jerusalem as the mother hen. Since then, Jesus has had his last supper with his disciples. He's been betrayed by Judas, and he's been abandoned by his disciples. We know from John's Gospel that the account we're looking at this morning is the second of six trials or questionings that will take place from Thursday evening to Friday morning when he's crucified. He's already had preliminary questions from Annas, Caiaphas' father-in-law, and the former high priests. He's already begun to, begun to be abused as he's been struck by guards and bound and handed over to Caiaphas. And this is where we pick up the story. So on our first point is that the end is near. The end is near. I'm going to read to you verse 58. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, uh, the high priest, where the scribes and elders had gathered. Sorry, 58. And Peter, following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. What we see here is that uh, Jesus was abandoned, but a couple of his disciples did follow him a bit further. And Peter here follows him at a distance. He's distancing himself from Jesus. You see in the passage afterwards just how much he's distancing himself from Jesus. But Peter comes to the high priest's courtyard to see the end. I don't know about you, but it strikes me as a little bit of a strange phrase. What does he mean by to see the end? What end? Jesus' end? The end of the story? The end of the trial? The end of the ordeal? 
Well, in Matthew's language, this is actually something much bigger. When Matthew talks about the end, he has one thing in mind. Have a look at the back of your notice sheets. You'll see there's a few verses printed. There should have been some, but I've got the wrong sheet. Um, yeah, they are printed on the back of your notice sheet. And there's just some quotes there from Matthew's Gospel. So Matthew 24, verse 6. And you will hear wars and rumours of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. Same word. Matthew 24, 13. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Uh, Matthew 24, 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. And finally, uh, Matthew 10, 21 and 22. Brothers will, brother will deliver brother over to death and father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. This is the only way that that phrase is used in Matthew's Gospel. In Matthew's Gospel, the end is the end. It's the end of the world, if you like, as Matthew talks about it. And this is Matthew's comment. It's not Peter that's saying this, it's Matthew that's telling us this in his Gospel. He wants us to see, as we see these events unfolding, that the end is near. In other words, what is happening here is something cosmic, is something massive. It's something, that jargony word again, eschatological. It belongs to the end. The rest of the uh, language used in this chapter is going to back that up. But Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension are end time events, if you like. We don't think of them as being the end because we live after them, which seems a little bit strange, doesn't it? But they're events in the end of the, they're events in the final chapter of the book, if you like, of history. It just so happens that we live in the same chapter. So think about what the Bible tells us will happen at the end. You've got the resurrection, haven't you? That's one thing that comes to the end. Well, we're going to see that as Jesus rises from the dead. We've got the judgment coming. Judgment day is another way of talking about it, isn't it? But judgment will fall on Christ here. It's a day of salvation as well. Well, that is brought about by Jesus' death and resurrection. So Jesus' death and resurrection are are end time events, if you like. And that makes them huge. Have you ever heard someone say, you know, it's, it's, it's bad, but it's not the end of the world, is it? Well, in this case, it, it sort of is. It's the beginning of the end. It's the, the breaking of the end into history. So the cross here is not going to be a mere detail of history as we go through. This is an epoch-changing, apocalyptic event as God hangs on a cross. That is huge. And this language is helping us to see that. Now, whether Peter realised this, we don't know. But using this language raises the questions that we've had with the end all the way through Matthew's Gospel. With all this persecution, with all this pressure, what we need to do is endure till the end. Will anyone endure? That's what Jesus has been telling his disciples to do, isn't it? Endure to the end, endure to the end. So it raises the question here, will Peter keep going? Will he endure to the end? And we see in the very next passage that no, he won't. He'll actually deny Jesus. Jesus was telling them this because it was something that they needed to hear. But what Matthew wants us to see here is that this is big, this is important, this is belonging to the end. He's raising the stakes, so the end is near. The second thing we see is that the trial is a veneer. Uh, I'm going to read verses 59 to 63. 
Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that you... Uh, what? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. Uh, We'll leave it there. What we're seeing here is that the trial is really a pretext. It's a veneer. It's it's something just scattered over the top, if you like. It's not the real thing that's going on. The people who are trying him are actively looking for false witnesses, literally pseudo-witnesses. And they have an agenda, don't they? Do you see that? In verse 59... That they might put him to death. The people who are leading this trial want to put him to death. This is not going to be a fair trial. Uh, We might call it a kangaroo court uh, nowadays. He was never going to be found innocent because they already had an agenda. So we see from this that this trial was a miscarriage of justice. We forget sometimes, don't we, how privileged we are to live in a land of justice. Sure, the papers highlight the cases where it goes a little bit wrong, but because they're the exception rather than the rule. If we're accused of a crime, we can expect a fair trial, a fair procedure. But Jesus was denied that. He wasn't given justice. He wasn't given his rights, if you like. Now, procedures did exist under Roman law, but many of these are ignored in Jesus' case. Courts that are there should have, should go to find a, a, an innocent person innocent, shouldn't they? They should defend the innocent, but instead they go after him. And they look for false witnesses, these pseudo-witnesses, who will twist and turn Jesus' words. But the problem with false witnesses and pseudo-witnesses is that they rarely agree, don't they? Imaginary facts are a bit harder to agree on than real ones. Uh, I don't know if you heard in the news about uh, the case of the Bowling Green Massacre that was mentioned in America uh, at a news conference, and uh, this was quoted as an example of why why we need to uh, be against terror because of this Bowling Green massacre. The thing is, it didn't really happen. And all the, all the accounts of it started to differ over exactly what had happened because it didn't really happen. Whereas if you've got something that's true, it's a lot easier to agree on, isn't it? Because there are things that you're all going to say. But when it's imaginary and made up, then you're not going to be able to do that. And the same is true here. But there is some basis in truth, especially when there are two witnesses that come forward with similar things. And this is the case with the pseudo-witnesses that they find. Matthew records their testimony for us in verse 61. And they said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Now, what they quote Jesus as saying is nowhere recorded in Matthew's gospel. And we'd be tempted to think that they just made it up, that it was completely imaginary. Except that actually we do have something similar recorded in John chapter 2. Again, on the back of your sheets, John chapter 2, verses 18 to 22. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So Jesus does say something similar to this, and we've seen in our Bible overview, didn't we, that Jesus does refer to himself as the temple sometimes. But can you spot the difference? Both cases, Jesus is speaking of himself as the temple. Again, he does that in Matthew's Gospel. 
Both there's the rebuilding of the temple after three days. That's the same. But who destroys the temple in the two accounts? Well, the pseudo-witnesses, they say that he has said he's able to destroy the temple. Whereas in John's Gospel, we say you destroy the temple. These pseudo-witnesses are making it sound a bit like a threat, aren't they? I am able to tear down this temple. And you can have a bit of sympathy with it, can't you? Jesus cleared the temple, didn't he? Turned over the tables. He announced in the passage that we looked at last week that the temple was desolate. But Jesus didn't say that he would destroy it. What did actually happen? Well, they're going to tear down the temple. But it says they tear down Jesus as they crucify him the next morning. He will raise it up. He's not so much threatening political revolution. He's promising physical resurrection. That's what that statement was about. But Matthew records the allegation for us here. We're supposed to see something about it. He could have just said they made accusations. Is it possible that he wants to bring this to mind? That the destruction of the temple is coming? That Jesus' death is approaching? Ironically, he's been accused of plotting the destruction of the temple. Yet here he is in a trial where they're plotting the destruction of the temple, of Jesus' body. So the trial here is a sham. It's just a veneer over the top. They have another agenda. They want to kill Jesus. And this is all the more terrifying because of our third point. The Christ is here. Let me read to you verse 64. Uh, end, end of 30, uh, 63 as well. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest here challenges Jesus head on. He challenges him in the strongest possible terms in his day. Now it might be prompted by the accusations of the previous chapter. The Jews believed that when the Messiah came he would build a new temple. So the two were linked together. That might be why he's asking at this point. And Jesus responds to this. And really his response is yes. It might sound like he's trying to avoid the question. But really it's clear from his answer that he means yes. And in fact he goes on that it's even stronger doesn't he? Jesus claims to be the son of man from Daniel 7. Now if you turn up Daniel 7 uh, in your Bibles, if someone could shout out some page numbers that would be uh, helpful. Daniel chapter 7. Four, three, four in the small ones. Eight, two, nine in the, the big ones. I'm going to read you verses 13 and 14. So I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As Jesus uses the phrase in Matthew, where he says, um, uh, where he says, but from now on I tell you, you see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power in, 
and coming with the clouds of heaven. Can you see that son of man, clouds of heaven? He's really referring us back to Daniel 7. Jesus is claiming to be this person, the one to whom God will grant all authority and a kingdom that will never pass away. By saying this, he's claiming dominion over all peoples, nations and language groups. So he's claiming to be the king. He's claiming to be the Christ. That's his answer to the question. But he's not fitting into their small expectations of the Messiah. He's not just going to be someone who's going to come and kick out the Romans. He's not just going to be someone who will rule over the land of Israel. He's going to be a universal king over all nations. And as you read through Matthew's Gospel, that's one of Matthew's huge concerns, isn't it? That they know that Jesus is for all nations. So think now, knowing what we know from that passage of the situation that they find themselves in. The soon-to-be-crowned king of the universe is subject to a trial at the hands of his creatures. The high priest doesn't realise who he's dealing with. He doesn't realise that his king is before him. But he should do. Jesus, after all, has just told him. But what does he mean that they'll see it from now on? That's a bit of a strange phrase, isn't it? What does it mean that they'll see him coming with the clouds of heaven? What event is it referring to? Well, I want to argue that it's not referring here to the second coming, though Jesus is coming back again, but it's referring to the ascension. It's referring to Jesus going up to heaven. If you remember, we looked at Daniel 7 uh, a few months ago and saw that it's Jesus coming up to heaven to receive those things, to take his seat at the right hand of God. (coughs) Jesus will return the same way, so he's coming back with the clouds, but initially what he's doing is going up there. So this is what Jesus' ascension is about, really, and this is what's coming only a little while afterwards. This is what people will see as Jesus appears afterwards. So if you think of the uh, New Testament, as people see Christ, they see him seated at the right hand of God in heaven. Jesus here says power. He really means God. Um, Actually, he could have said God. If he said God's name, he would have been charged with blasphemy. Uh, So he avoids that, but actually gets charged with blasphemy anyway. But in other words, what he's saying here is that from now on, you will see the king of glory, the king of kings. But doesn't that make the timing of this even more strange? He says from now on. You'd expect him to say sometime in the future or or soon. But that's not what it says. You know, you'd expect to say, well, after my resurrection and ascension. But that would be to ignore one of the strange truths of scripture. The cross is going to be part of his kingly glory. He will wear a crown, but it will be a crown of thorns. He will be lifted up, but he'll be lifted up on a cross. It's a hidden glory, but the cross is a necessary part of his kingly reign. But the high priest is oblivious, isn't he? He tears his robe. That's something that high priests were forbidden to do in Leviticus unless it was something really serious. They accuse Jesus of blasphemy, and he asks the court for a verdict. The court sentences him to death, and then the abuse begins, doesn't it? Spitting on him, striking him, mocking him. Luke tells us he was blindfolded, which might explain why they asked him to say who'd hit him. This defenceless, innocent man is abused by the very authorities that should have protected him, that should have bowed the knee to him. But instead, he's on his knees 
before them. They already had in mind that he was not the Christ. And his admission to being the Christ only seemed to prove it to them. Now we can look at them and think, how stupid. But don't we do the same? Make up our minds on an issue and then find evidence to prove it? People still do it with Jesus. His miracles aren't evidence because, well, miracles are impossible. Uh, that's all the more evidence then that he must be a fraud. The Gospels can't be trusted because, well, the writers believe Jesus was the Christ. That's more evidence that it's a fairy tale. When we look at the world, we naturally look at it through glasses that filter out God. You know, you get those glasses that filter out UV rays. They're always talking about them on the, uh, the news and the, the uh, health programs. Well, we have glasses on naturally that filter out God. We don't realise that we're wearing them and we think we're impartial. Like Caiaphas, we, ex- we find what we expect to find because we look at everything through our glasses. Now, everyone wears glasses, Christians too. The question is, which glasses show reality most as it really is? If we wear the wrong glasses, then Jesus will appear much smaller than he really is. As we look at the cross, we'll see a pathetic naked carpenter crucified by forces beyond his meagre control. But if we look with the right glasses on, we'll see the true Jesus, the Son of Man with all power and authority, the glorious King of Heaven. He's our friend, he is our brother, but he's not small like us. But doesn't that make the cross even more amazing? This isn't a small man being crushed. This is a big man laying down his life, allowing himself to be humiliated by small men. So how big is your Jesus this morning? We see here that he's huge, isn't he? He's massive, he's the king of the universe. And yet he made himself nothing for us. He's the king of everything who wore a crown of thorns on the cross for us. That's the glory of Christ and that's the glory of the cross.